You know who this is? This is Coco O'Grady. Hello. Now, if you had a name like that, what would you do with it? Dance. Uh, dance, probably. <laughs> anyway, don't forget that Coco has tapes of all of the speeches and what have you, and she also will be taping some of the workshops. So those are available out there. All right? Right, Coco? Thank you so much. Thank you. Right. Coco's been with us a long, long time. We have a very unusual and special announcement to make this evening. And we are about as pleased as punk to use a bad cliche to be able to do this. Thank you, Coco. How many of you were here this afternoon to watch uh, Charles Sparky Schultz? How many of you enjoyed it? How many of you remember this? Would you like to have this? This is a very limited edition. Signed by Charles Schultz. This is 1944, June the 6th, to remember is the most unique print that he has ever done for his comics in that it is an actual real photograph of Eisenhower talking to some of the troops. And down here in the bottom is a little drawing of Snoopy in battle gear. Most unusual. Signed by Charles his real signature. So we're going to, we've done things like this before because we are fascinated by having scholarship. So what we are going to do, we have three of the series here, a very limited edition, 350 limited edition, and we are going to raffle these three strips off. So what you can do is tomorrow at this time, there will be two people that I will introduce tomorrow evening that will be accepting money for the lottery tickets. They will be a dollar apiece. You can buy one. You can buy five million if you like. And we will use all of the monies for this for scholarship in the following year. And we certainly appreciate what Charles Sparky Schultz has done by being able to give this to you. So those tickets will be available tomorrow and then on Thursday evening we will have the drawing and there will be three very lucky people who win a very much unique prize that I can't imagine the value. This happens to be at this present time Charles Bardichel's favorite cartoon. Okay, favorite comic strip. This is the one he loves and he knows that. But it's not a comic strip. It's, well, a, work, it's a work of art. It's a work of art. It's most unusual. You'll never see this again. So anyway, I'm buying 200,000 tickets, so <laughs> i got to have one of these. So at this stage, uh, I'm through. What we're going to do, you'll hear more about this tomorrow. Uh, here's the guru, my mentor, Mr. Barnaby Conrad. Come on up, Barnaby. I want you to guess who wrote these following words and at the end I'm going to ask and if anybody says Joseph Conrad or uh, Ernest Hemingway you have to leave the conference and not come back <laughs> but I'm going to read these words and see if you can guess who wrote them because they are not most unique if they're unique to sum it all up if you want to write you want to create, 
You must be the most sublime fool that God ever turned out and sent rambling. You must write every single day of your life. You must read dreadful dumb books and glorious books and let them wrestle in beautiful fights inside your head, vulgar one moment, brilliant the next. You must lurk in libraries and climb the stacks like ladders to snuff books like perfumes and wear books like hats upon your crazy heads. I wish for you a wrestling match with your creative muse that will last a lifetime. I wish, I wish craziness and foolishness and madness upon you. May you live with hysteria and out of it make fine stories, which finally means may you be in love every day for the next 20,000 days and out of that love remake the world. Who wrote those words? Where's Ray Bradbury? Where's Ray Bradbury? Well, I'm sorry, Ray couldn't make it tonight. But I thought I'd tell you some funny jokes that I... Where is Ray Bradbury? Raymond. I hear his voice. Raymond. Let me tell you, I, I was going to give a lecture on anticlimax. Um, anyway. Uh, to all you writers, a lot of people think that when you come to the climax of a story, that's the end of the story. Not at all. There's the anticlimax. And that is what we are witnessing now. Uh, but Mr. Bradbury is coming up slowly, but surely. He is not shuffling up. See, the verb is important. He's not shuffling up. He's not limping up. He is striding up to the podium. And thank God. Oh, thank God. Ray Bradbury. <laughs> there are a lot of new people here, aren't there? How many new people? My God, I'm doing the same speech from last year. All right. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I, the main reason I'm here is because 27 years ago, Mary and Barney invited me to Lake Tahoe. They had a writer's conference there, and I fell in love with the two of them. I thought they were just wonderful people. And the next year, they formed this group, and they called me and said, will you come help out? I said, I sure will, because I wanted to be around people like them. And I think you made a good choice. They run a, a terrific program here, and I know most of the people for 26 years now. Before I get into any <clears throat> major part of my speech, I want to give you some lessons in hygiene, literary hygiene here. Very important, because there are a lot of things afflicting you these days, and I want to send them away from you and get you away from them. I did an article in the Wall Street Journal about three months ago called The Affluence of Despair. The Affluence of Despair, warning people about what's been going on in our society for the last eight or nine or 10 years. Because here we are, the most successful nation in the world, huh? We've done a lot of things right. We've gone to the moon, huh? We've conquered space, we're exploring Mars. We have a good economy that's been going on now for roughly 20 years. We seem to know a little bit about economics. Um, and we have a few flaws, 
but there's this overriding nervousness, a sense of mysterious panic at times. We think we're not at ease with ourselves. And I've been trying to figure out what in hell has been going on with us. What's wrong that we feel this way? Well, it's, it's local television news, right? <laughs> After tonight, I've said this three or four years in a row now. After you leave here tonight, never again, never again, are any of you ever to watch local television news. Ever again, no. From tonight on. It's all crap, isn't it, huh? It's murders you didn't commit, funerals you don't want to go to, rapes you have nothing to do with, AIDS you don't want to catch, huh? And so this, if you watch local television news for a thousand nights running, you've got to believe the end of the world is coming, huh? That we're no good. Because all you see is these shootings, and they blow everything up in the last 15 years. Look at the pan We have the panic of the week, or the panic of the month. Remember the Three Mile Island uh, melt, so-called meltdown? Nothing happened. Huh? No one got hurt. No one was killed. But my God, that went on for uh, a whole month. And the China Syndrome came out at the same time, convinced us to destroy the atom industry, huh? In the meantime, France has almost all their electricity produced by atomic power. Now, something's wrong here, huh? We let the ecologists scare the hell out of us. So, but that was on local TV news and international news every night. Then we had the care about the poisoned apples, you know, uh, I think it was LR was the chemical on the outside, and they destroyed part of the uh, apple industry. Then we had the poisoned grapes from South America, remember that? Turned out to be three grapes, huh? <laughs> destroyed part of the uh, grape industry. And then we had the, uh, the that mysterious gas from the cellar that permeated the, everyone's house, and we spent billions of dollars repairing houses. Then we had the asbestos scare. I was in a building in, uh, in uh, Beverly Hills seven years ago, I was there for 20 years, and the landlord used the asbestos as a means of getting us out of the building. Now until you open the walls, the asbestos can't hurt you, huh? So you open the walls and everyone leaves, huh? And that gives them an excuse to raise all the rents, huh? And after a year of repairs, he invited us all back and no one came. The building's been empty now for five years. So that son of a bitch really got it, didn't he? <laughs> so, so we're being afflicted with all these things. And when you watch local TV news every night and do that for a thousand nights, you've got to begin to believe you're not worthwhile, our country's not worthwhile. We've saved a lot of countries. We've saved a lot of countries. We've done a lot of good. We've made some mistakes, I think. Vietnam is a terrible one. Korea was a terrible one. But the overall things that we've done to try to help. Uh, we've fed millions of people. We're giving away food by the millions of tons every year. Our medical discoveries have changed the history of, of birth and death. Huh? And uh, I had lunch with Gorbachev in Washington, D.C. seven years ago. And I was there because his daughter is a fan of mine. Thank God for his daughter, huh? I was introduced to Gorbachev, 
And he said, oh, Ray Bradbury, our daughter is in love with you. I said, keep her, keep her, you know. <laughs> and then I was introduced to Gorbachev, and she turned to Gorbachev, and she grabbed his elbow. She said, Mikhail, Mikhail, this is the man our daughter loves. He says, I know, I know. And I said, so later on, after lunch, I said to him, what do you think of President Reagan? He said, your greatest president. I said, oh, really? Why do you say that? He said, because he's the only president that you've ever had that said, tear down the wall, huh? Johnson never said it, Kennedy never said it, Nixon never said it, huh? Ford never said it. The one president who said, tear down the wall, and we believed him. And the wall went down, and Russia collapsed, huh? We did that, we Americans did that. So we have so much that's positive. So I go back to my original advice, no more local television news, huh? And be careful of the international news, too. Uh, you can watch C-SPAN 1, C-SPAN 2. You can watch our politicians being the jerks that they are, huh? And, uh, and remember that all politicians have no minds of their own. They, they have your minds, huh? They think with your thoughts. And that's no way to be a politician, is it? To take a poll to make up your mind? I'm sorry. I want to be a leader, not a follower. I want you to be individual leaders, not followers. So stay away from politics. Huh? I did my share of all that stuff back 40 years ago. I worked for Adlai Stevenson, who was a, uh, a coward, huh? turned out to be a coward. Uh, Humphrey was a coward. He could have been president, but he didn't speak up. Huh? So politics is a mug game, a real mug game. I want, what I want for you is when you leave here from now on to live in the library, huh? to live in the library, to love books as much as I do. I, I, when I graduated from high school, I couldn't afford to go to college, and it's just as well because I was a sex fiend. Huh? <laughs> and I don't think I would have hit the books, huh? <laughs> everything else, everything else. So I got a job selling newspapers on a street corner, and I went to the library three days a week, the big downtown LA library, for 10 years. And I, I lived in there, I swam in there, I existed in there, and I graduated from the library when I was 27 years old, huh? That's the life, the library is completely it. Forget about the computers, to hell with the internet, no more internet for you people. That's crap too. Huh? That's macho male macho crap, huh? They're, remember, they're trying to sell something to you. You don't need anything but a, a pad and pencil, huh? That's all you need, and the library. And the old-fashioned typewriter. I, I still have my IBM uh, Wheelwriter number 10. It's about 10 years old. But I can out-type all of you, huh? I've been typing since I was 13 years old. And when necessary, I can sit down with a pad and pencil. I'll go into a room. I challenged some people at Apple Computer a few years ago. I said, put me in a room with 100 people on computers, and I'll have my pad and pencil, and I'll out-create the whole goddamn bunch. Huh? <laughs> it's in here. It's in here. It's in here. Huh? It's not in the machines. They're trying to sell you something. The internet page looks like the obituary columns in Time Magazine. Huh? It's all little bits and bytes. It's, it's a, uh, um, well, that, that's the best way of describing it, huh? Yeah. And as, 
they want to affect you, they're trying to convince you that you can be creative, that's not it. People say, well, I can do research on it. Are you researchers? Are you article writers? I don't think so. Maybe some of you are. That's fine. You can use the internet for that. But then immediately you leave the house and you go to the library. They've got the same thing at the library. They've got card catalogs, which are now computerized. And you turn away from the computer and you go right to the stacks, huh? And you run amok. And this, this other stuff is too distant, huh? It's like an umbilical cord that leads for miles to somewhere, nowhere. I want you to, to breathe in the library. I want you to smell the books. I want you to hold them. You can't take a, a computer to bed, huh? You can take a book to bed, huh? Take a book anywhere. I'm going to go heading off for Paris again next Monday, and I'm taking my favorite American author with me, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tender as the Night. <laughs> and I reread it from Paris every July. My God, what a, what a wonderful thing to do, to be so completely in love with a book. I want you to be in love with these other writers. And I, I don't want you to be jealous of them, but I want you to envy their joy. huh? Envy me my joy. Watch me, huh? Jump up and down and yell this late in life about being a writer and being in love with libraries. When I graduated from high school and couldn't go to college, I took my teachers with me. They became my friends. My short story teacher, Jeanette Johnson, became my friend for the last 40 years. She died in the age of 92 a few years ago. Uh, Snow Longley Hosh was my poetry teacher. And I took her with me into my life. I formed a group of other fellow writers from high school, mostly young women who were superbly talented because you women, are you grow faster and you have inherent talent that comes to the surface quicker. Huh? You know, I belonged to the poetry club in high school. I didn't let any of my pals know because they would have beat the hell out of me. Huh? Because boys are not supposed to be poets, huh? I think it's still true. And a lot of those girls went on into writing, became novelists. Ramona Stewart was one of them, a friend of mine. She wrote eight novels. Every single one was made into a film. Yeah. Damn good novels, too. And Bonnie Louise Barrett, the names are endless. And I had to come up more slowly. But boys are slow learners. They don't reach their creative uh, apex as quickly as girls or women do, huh? So that being true, I formed a group of other writers just out of high school, and we met every two weeks at each other's homes, and we read our poetry or our plays or our short stories. You need people around you, similar people with similar dreams. So when you leave this gathering here in the next few days and go home, if you don't already have a group, a support group, you must find one. It isn't easy. It depends on what city you live in. But you've got to make the effort of finding four or five or six people who are kindred spirits in different fields of writing. You don't want to be competing with each other. So when I finished with that group, I formed another group when I was about 29 years old, 30 years old. And we had an architectural writer, a humorist, an aviation writer. Uh, I was a science fiction fantasy writer. And there was a, a guy that wrote mysteries, a young aviator came into our group wanted to be a writer and he was just out of the air corps and he was in charge of an aviation magazine and he came over to the house i introduced him to the group 
and not much ever happened to him except Jonathan Livington Seagull. So you just never know. We all encouraged each other, and there was never any competitive spirit, no jealousy. So you've got to put together a multitudinous group whose aim is to succeed as a writer, but whose ways of getting there are different, huh? And you need to, to be able to criticize each other's work and then take what you can from each encounter. I don't take the, all the criticism seriously when I sit at a meeting like this and read my story and then they comment, then I make notes. Those things that apply, I do something about, huh? Try to do something about that. So you need that. And in the meantime, I want to give you <coughs> a recipe for your life, every night of your life from now on, which is delightful. Every night before you, you go to bed, huh? I want you to take five minutes and read one poem. One poem a night for a thousand nights. You could read all the most wonderful poems in the world in a thousand nights, huh? Stay away from most modern poetry. It's crap, huh? Yeah. We, we've leveled the playing field. We've tried to convince everyone that everyone's a poet. They're not. I'm sorry. I wish it were true. It took me 20 years of writing poetry before I began to write a really decent poem with a strong metaphor, with some sense of rhythm, not necessarily rhyme. If the metaphor is powerful enough, huh? It doesn't matter about the rhyme, but if you can do both swell, go back in the history, read Alexander Pope, read Shakespeare, for God's sake, over and over and over again, until huh? it gets into your bloodstream. So for a thousand nights running, going back 200 years, coming on up till around 1960 in American poetry and European poetry, there's very little sense that the, the, the great period of the poets almost ended with Yeats. Huh? You come up a little bit further than that. But you've got to get this into your bloodstream so you don't think about it. Then, every night before you go to sleep, I want you to take another 15 minutes and read all the great short stories of the world. In a thousand nights, there's no reason you can't read all the great Russians, Pirandello in Italy, all the great French short story writers, de Maupassant, uh, going over into uh, to England with Kipling and Dickens, and oh God, the list is endless, huh? So again, for a thousand nights, you read all the greatest short stories, and these get into your bloodstream, you see. I want this to become your part of your subconscious. And then for a thousand nights, another 20 minutes, and read all the great essays of the world from every country and every kind of subject, architecture, Egyptology, paleontology, chemistry. They're, they're, they're good essays in every field. The history of medicine, uh, fantastic. So what am I doing? I'm trying to get you to pour into your head all these metaphors from a variety of fields, huh? So you forget that they're even there. These are the machinery, the, the, the mills of the gods that are going to grind the other metaphors together for you and make new ones. When you're young, you don't come up with new metaphors. Very right, I didn't get any decent ideas until I'd been out of high school at least three or four years. And then the machinery began to work because I had been reading steadily. I lived in the library. Then I want you to see every important motion picture ever made. Huh? I've seen them all, starting when I was three years old. I saw The Hunchback of Notre Dame and walked strangely for a month thereafter. Huh? <laughs> this is 1923. And then in 1925, I saw uh, The Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney again, silent motion picture. 
the Lost World with the primitive dinosaurs that were later recreated in King Kong. All these things go into your head. These, these are, the relationship between motion pictures and poetry is one to one. If I were teaching a cinema class, I would teach the great poems because that's cinematography, it's metaphors, you photograph, it's haiku. And I give the class lessons in, in writing haiku and reading haiku, which you should do too because they're compressed metaphors, huh? intense ones, so you can say things economically instead of long-windedly. Huh? So you see all these great films, read all the great poems, you're pouring in more metaphors that go side by side with all the other things I've been telling you about. And then I collect comic strips. I've been doing that since I was nine years old. And again, here we have metaphors, storyboards. Huh? Uh, I learned my first lesson in aesthetics when I was in the fifth grade. I collected Buck Rogers comic strips. That was October 1929. Came into all the newspapers of America. That was the first month of the Great Depression, which went on for 10, 11, 12 years. Huh? Incredible time. Terrible time. But I took a look. I had this intuitive recognition of something amazing that happened right in front of me. I looked at that single strip of Buck Rogers with Wilma Daring flying through the air on a jumping belt, an inertron, firing off a rocket gun, and Buck Rogers staggering out of a, of a cave where he'd been in suspended animation for 500 years, and he woke up in the future. And I said, that's for me, huh? And I went away into the future that day, and I never came back. Huh? But the kids in the fifth grade made fun of me for collecting the Buck Rogers comic strips. We were never going to go to the moon. We weren't going to Mars. We weren't going to build uh, spaceships. Huh? There was no future. No future. We were all four together. And the depression was just starting. It was going to go on forever. We didn't know what to do about it. So, like a fool, after a month of collecting Buck Rogers, I tore them up. And three days later, I broke into tears. I sat down crying and I said to myself, why am I crying? Who died? Whose funeral am I attending? And the answer was, your funeral, you, you stupid idiot. <laughs> you listen to those people. Why did you listen to them? They've destroyed the future. Why be around people who destroy your future? And then I did the smartest thing I've ever done. Age nine, I made this decision. I went back and collected Buck Rogers for the rest of my life, and I've never listened to another damn fool after that. Huh? Yeah. Very important. Whatever your taste is, you go with it. You may change your mind 10 years later, 20 years later, but it's the beginning. You've got to start somewhere. I started with Buck Rogers. I started with Flash Gordon. Tarzan came into my life. Incredible. Edgar Rice Burroughs. The Tarzan stories, the John Carter, Warlord of Mars stories. I wouldn't have written the Martian Chronicles 20 years later if I hadn't been influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs and Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, huh? Looked down upon by most intellectuals over a period of time. But it's pure metaphor. Right? You can explain it to one another. The science fiction magazines, the covers of those magazines were magical. It got me into architecture. I didn't know what I was getting into. 
later on when I got into being a consultant in architecture, I realized it began when I was seven years old, reading the science fiction magazines and looking at the covers of impossible cities that would never be built, huh? Beautiful cities and wonderful aircraft that, that flew from the air out into outer space, huh? Metaphors, metaphors, metaphors. I want you to cram your head with all these metaphors from seven or eight different fields, you see? This is where ideas come from. And then you put those together with the metaphors of your life. You've been collecting personal metaphors second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, since you were born. You have all those personal memories plus the metaphor, the reaction to what you experience. You have a double experience every time you have an event. This very second, huh? You're listening to me, you're also reacting to me. You have a double metaphor. You have me and your reaction to it. You're putting that away, huh? Your, your, your regard for what I'm saying. That's true for all of your life, huh? On up through. So you then get all these other metaphors in. You're filling your mind with all these imaginative stuff. I collected the comic strips. Forty years later, I got a phone call from uh, Robert Dilly, John Dilly's son, the man who created Buck Rogers when I was nine, asking me if I would write the introduction to the collected works of Buck Rogers. Huh? See how I get my work? I don't have to pick up the phone. <laughs> they know I'm crazy. They know I'm crazy and they call me. So when I was 13, I want to show you how I collect metaphors and I hyperventilate. See, I make people nervous. All through uh, junior high school and high school, uh, my, my, my pals hated me because I was enthused, huh? And there's such a thing as joy, jealousy, huh? Uh, people hating you because you're enjoying life so much and they don't have the secret of letting go, for Christ's sake, huh? I, have a, I remember at dinner one night with my brother, my, my mother made a wonderful dinner and when it was done I said, that was beautiful. And my brother said, no, it was good. You see the difference of uh, being able to know beauty when you see it or taste it, huh? So uh, I hyperventilated on all these things. And when I saw the Chicago World's Fair, which was only 30 miles south of Waukegan, where I grew up, I walked through the city of the future. This is 1933. I couldn't believe it. I didn't want to leave. My mother and father had to drag me out of there at midnight, put me on the train, take me home. And I was weeping with frustration because I wanted to live in those buildings, huh? And never come out. And I discovered the damn fools two years later are gonna tear the whole thing down. How can you do that? How can you tear down the future? How can you be that stupid? The French know more about this. You go to Paris and everything is still up the way it was 100 years ago. They built the Eiffel Tower for the exposition in Paris 105, 106 years ago. Most of the buildings from that fair, the um, fine arts buildings, all of those, the museum, are still there from 100 years ago. We haven't learned that lesson. Washington, D.C. is one of the exceptions. They got a lot of buildings that have been there for quite a while. But to preserve the metaphors, huh? our function as writers and builders of museums and creators of comic strips and good short stories on any level is to make people want to live forever. That's your function. And if you don't do that on some level so that you get people 
hyperventilating, you're not functioning right, huh? You're not jumping out of bed each morning and saying, God, I can hardly wait, huh? The Egyptians, I hear, had a myth and still have, that when you die and go to the gates of the dead, and the God of the death, dead questions you about your life, the one question he asks of you is, did you have enthusiasm? Did you have enthusiasm? And if you didn't, you're out on your ass, huh? <laughs> I ask that of you. Are you enthused? Do you care about what you're doing? Really care? Or are you thinking of profit? Did you come here hoping someday to write a bestseller and be famous and make a lot of money? I can't help you. I can't help you. I don't know the secret of that. It can evolve over a period of time, but no one can give you the formula. Oh, there are formulas around, and people do imitate them, and the damn things sell, but they go to bed at night with themselves, and they're, they're completely alone, aren't they? Huh? Who gives a damn? Who gives a damn? So you've got, you've got to read people like Edith Wharton, Jessamyn West, Willa Cather, a lot of wonderful women writers who have influenced me. I've grown up with all kinds of writers, not just the, not the male writers. And you read Edith Wharton, one of the great writers. She's coming into her own again. She was in her own back in 1905, 1915, 1925. And then there was kind of a lull and the Age of Innocence came out a few years ago as a film and helped re-stimulate people to the genius of Edith Wharton. So then you, you read Emily Dickinson, for God's sake. Yeah. So again, there are all these wonderful influences to make you excited about digging out the stuff in you. Now we get to the important thing here is that there's so much you haven't experimented with yet. The real you, you haven't brought out on the surface. You've been busy imitating. We've all done that in high school. I did imitations of Jeeves. I love Jeeves, Wodehouse, you know. I did, I did uh, Dickens. I did Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. I did my own Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, that went nowhere, did it, huh? That wasn't me. That was my enthusiasm. When I got my first money selling newspapers on a street corner, I ran off to Hollywood, went to a recording studio, and read sections of The Man Who Could Work Miracles by H.G. Wells, or The Invisible Man, all that great paranoid stuff that appeals to young boys, huh? Because when we're 17, 18, we're all paranoid. Normal paranoid condition of being a 17-year-old boy. So, but that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Here and there in high school, writing short stories, I almost discovered the secret of writing. And I, but I didn't recognize it when I saw it. I did a short story about a ravine in my hometown that scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Afraid to go there. And I wrote this whole section on that ravine, and I didn't realize I'd done something original. Turned away, did all these imitations till I was around 22 years old. And one day, sitting out in the sun with my typewriter and when I was 22 years old, I remembered a day in my life when I was eight years old by Lake Michigan, playing with a little girl. We were building sandcastles on the shore. She went into the lake and she never came out. Huh? And I couldn't figure out what was happening. People tried to explain to me what drowning was, you know. I didn't know anything about drowning. What is this? Uh, they never found her, never found her. 
that ghost haunted me for the next 12 or 13 years. Here I was, 22 years old. I suddenly remembered the ghost of that lost girl, and I wrote a short story called The Lake. And an hour, God bless you. And an hour later, when I finished the story, tears were running down my cheeks. I had turned a corner after 10 years of writing. I had become a writer at last. I found me. And that story is still around. It's been anthologized 50 times in the last 50 years. Huh? And I learned from that story, what you are here for is to find you, not some way to become a writer. No, some way to discover you. And that you becomes the writer. Huh? All this stuff in you that, that wants to come out, you, when you turn away from it, eventually it will sour. You'll grow old before your time. You will hate yourself. We get these lectures, there are books on, on mind blocks. Huh? There's no such thing. Shall I tell you what it is? When you have a block on a story or a novel, it means your subconscious says to you, I don't like you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like this subject. You're selling out. That's crap. Cut it out, huh? And as soon as you turn away and start to write something that means something to you, your fears, your hopes, your loves, make a list of the ten people you hate and kill them in a short story. <laughs> <laughs> write a short story, write a series of short stories about things that you love. And then you'll be writing good stuff. Things you really love. Huh? That really excites you. And change your life. And then a lot of other stuff in between. I started making lists of metaphors instinctively when I was in high school. When There used to be a wonderful magazine called Coronet. Some of you older people will remember that from the middle 30s. And they had the photographs by the world's greatest photographers, starting with, with um, uh, I was trying to think of some of the time in life photographers of that time, but uh, they were all in there anyway. Terrific photographs. I ripped the photograph. I couldn't afford the damn magazine. It cost a quarter, huh? But I got them from secondhand bookstores, and I ripped the photograph out, and I wrote poems based on the photographs. See, metaphor, metaphor. I had this instinct to recognize that I had to feed myself photographs and make poems and find metaphors. I am a metaphor machine, and if I succeed tonight in turning you into a metaphor machine, I will have accomplished what I'm setting out to do, to get you to hungrily devour all these things in so many fields I've told you about, and then you'll wake up hyperventilating every day. You can hardly wait to write, huh? That's the important thing. So, to, but turning away from this individual self. And I did a series of word associations about my childhood in Illinois, huh? And I did another series of word associations about the planet Mars and outer space and rocket ships, influenced by um, the Winesburg, Ohio, Sherwood Anderson, remarkable book of short stories that looks like a novel but isn't. Huh? I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing what I learned as a slogan from Federico Fellini 20 years ago. I met him for the first time in Rome and he said, don't tell me what I'm doing, I don't want to know. Hmm? 
That's what I want for you. I want you to blindly, blindly upchuck yourself. Huh? That's what someone else wants. No political crap. Stay away from all that. Huh? It's all lies. It's all self-aggrandizement. To hell with it. I want you to upchuck you. Huh? All this stuff in your subconscious that needs to come out. Now, if you do otherwise, then you're going to get that, that mind block because your subconscious is going to say, I don't like you. And so I'm going to stop the machinery, cut off the water and power, huh? and you'll sit by the typewriter and wonder what happened. It's because you've been lying and you think you're doing the right thing and you're not. huh? And uh, if you are a natural born writer in certain fields, they can really do certain things that none of us understand. That's okay if it works and you don't get any mind block. If you want to write soap operas for TV and you really know how to do it and you know that the secret of women's psyches, huh? I have a daughter, Bettina, who writes for all my children every week, huh? I don't understand that. You, a lot of you women, a lot of you girls know about that because you grew up watching those things and denying that you did, huh? And it's all about, all those soap operas are about what monsters we men are and how in hell you put up with us, huh? Yeah. You, you, you love us in spite of what we are. Some of us are pretty decent, huh? We're not all mean, we're not all wife beaters, but nevertheless, that's what the, that's all about. And there are certain people who can go into those fields and write creatively. So I'm not saying stay out of certain fields if you have the gift and you really care. My daughter really cares. She's won three Emmys now, huh? And I only have one. I feel bereft, huh? <laughs> But I don't understand how she does it, except that she's a woman, and she's had romances, and now she has a good marriage, and she has children. So she's had the complete experience, and she can write about it. But a lot of these people who write soap operas don't know the first thing about being a woman. And that's what you can learn from Jessamyn West and Willa Cather and Edith Wharton, huh? And put that into your work. People worth looking at. So anyway, the... Fellini's saying, don't tell me what I'm doing, I don't want to know. What does that mean? Well, I said to him at dinner one night in Rome, I said, I hear that when you're making a motion picture, you never look at the rushes, you don't look at the dailies. You make the film, takes 50, 60 days, and you never look at it while you're making it. I said, how can you do that? He says, I don't want to know what I'm doing. I want to remain mysterious, huh? So I'm provoked. My intuition the next day, I tried to think, what the hell did I do yesterday? <laughs> and then my intuition comes and says, well, I think he did this, so let's try that. So there may be missing pieces, but that's okay. When the film is done, you can go back and fuse those. Huh? You can provide the moment. I'm, I'm working on two novels right now. I don't know where in hell I'm going, huh? I, I brought two of them with me. I'm going to Paris, taking them both along. I've been working on them. For six months. I don't know where they're going to end, but I get all these characters together. It's like a band of gypsies playing Hamlet all over Barcelona, huh? They rest, let's go over here and we'll do this a little. No, well, let's go over there. So you got a band of gypsies running around your head declaring things, and Jesus Christ, you don't know what they're going to do next, and you shouldn't care. Just get it done, huh? Don't tell anyone what you're doing. 
Henry Kuffner, when I was 22 years old, one of the finest writers in the field, said to me, Ray, do, do me a favor. I said, what? He said, shut your mouth. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're a motor mouth. You know, you run around yanking people's elbows and grabbing their lapels and saying, listen to this idea. I got a great idea. And then you never write it, huh? You don't write it or the person you tell it to can't understand what you're saying, huh? Because you can't tell it as well as you can write it. And they say, oh, that doesn't sound any good. And they shoot it dead, huh? You see, I'll find it. I want you to shut your mouth from tonight on, huh? Don't watch TV. Shut your mouth. Get the work done. And when it's finished, you can show it to your friends. But it's got, the baby's got to be born, huh? And then you hold it up and say, it's ugly, but it's mine. Here it is. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. Beware of anything self-conscious. Anything self-conscious is automatically non-creative. You can't think of what you're doing when you're doing it. Just get it done, for God's sake, huh? And then you go back and you put in the missing pieces. I wrote all these Martian stories. I lived in Venice, California with my wife. This is 51 years ago. We were very poor. She worked for two years to support us. She made $42 a week. I made $40 a week. And suddenly she was pregnant. There went most of our income because in the middle of the summer she had to give up working and prepare to deliver the child. And she couldn't go back to work. There was no way because we had no friends for the last 50 years. He said, Ray, you've got to go to New York City and know that they've got to know that you exist. So I, I bought a ticket on the Greyhound bus and went to New York. Have you ever traveled four days and four nights on a Greyhound bus with no air conditioning and no toilet? Yes, sir, boy, first class, huh? <laughs> Got to New York, stayed at the YMCA, $5 a week. I had $40 to last me while I was there for 10 days. And I went around, talked to all the editors, showed them my short stories. They said, we don't publish short stories. Don't you have a novel? I said, no, I'm a sprinter. I'm a sprinter. I write things in a morning. All my stories are written in one day. And then in the following days, polish them. But no rewriting. Yeah, just, just polish them. So I had 200 short stories to offer people. No one wanted them. On the last day I was in New York, <clears throat> I had dinner with the editor of Doubleday, Walter Bradbury, no relation, nice, wonderful man. And during uh, dinner at Luchow's, he turned to me and said, well, what about all those short stories of yours about Mars? If you sewed them together and made a tapestry with little interim pieces, wouldn't they make a book called The Martian Chronicles? I said, oh my God. And he says, what? I said, oh, Winesburg, Ohio. When I read that book when I was 24, I said to myself, someday I would love to write a book like this, but on Mars. Huh? Not about a small town in Iowa or Ohio or, or Illinois, but on Mars. So I wrote all these stories without knowing it. huh? Don't tell me what I'm doing. I don't want to know. And my, this editor told me what I had done. Huh? That's the way to write, huh? blindly, with passion. He said, now look, go back to the YMCA tonight and write an outline on this and bring it to me tomorrow, and if I like it, I'll give you an advance of $750. So I stayed up all night and I wrote the outline for the Martian Chronicles. It all fell in place. 
I'd been writing it, but didn't know it, huh? Took it to him the next day. He read, he says, there, here's $750. He said, now, do you have another book? Sort of like this that we can kid people into thinking it's a novel too? And I said, well, I've got a story called The Illustrated Man about a man who has illustrations all over his body, and late at night when he perspires, the illustrations wake up and live their stories. He said, here's another $750. <laughs> so, so I left home, I left New York on the goddamn Greyhound bus <laughs> and made it as far as Chicago with an advance of $1,500. I said, to hell with this, and I got off and turned in the ticket, went over to the railroad station and bought a chair car, which was just a little bit more expensive. At least I could sit up on the train going home to L.A. And that $1,500 paid for the birth of our baby, because babies were born for 100 bucks in those days, you know, 49 years ago, and paid our rent for two years, because our rent was only $30 a month. Huh? So, again, and a couple of years later, I've been doing all these short stories about my childhood, uh, about the wonder of a new pair of tennis shoes. I did a whole little short story on that. I did a short story about uh, mowing the lawn. I did a short story about front porches on summer nights. I did a thing on the fire balloons. Wonderful Fourth of July, the last one I had with my grandfather when I was five years old. And we stood out on the lawn at midnight and we fired off a hundred dollars worth of fireworks. This is 1925. Can you imagine? How much money that was, huh? Because the average income that week was $15 a week, average worker, huh? So all the relatives came over and sat on the porch, and we fired off all these fireworks, and what a happy time, what a happy time. And at midnight, we had this last fire balloon of Japanese tissue with a little uh, cup underneath, and you lit the straw, and the warm air breathed up and gave body to the balloon. And I held it in my hand, like a ghost with my grandfather and then we let it drift up into the summer night and away into the stars and i stood on that summer night lawn and i wept because fourth of july was never coming back huh? when you're that age fourth of july is forever coming back halloween's never going to come christmas will never appear huh? so that's the stuff you get you see that's the magic stuff magic really call it what you will and I did all these word associations. What, what it's like to discover you're alive, huh? Each of you has a different time in your life. Maybe you were nine, maybe you were 10. I was 12. And I, I looked at the hair on the back of my wrist one day when I was 12 years old. And I, I breathed on it and I said, my God. And then I, I felt my body and I said, I'm alive, why didn't someone tell me, huh? Why didn't someone tell me? What is this? Amazing, amazing, you know, the gift of sight. And I wrote an essay on that. And then uh, the next thought, a couple days later, is I can die. Jesus comes. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't somebody tell me that? I see all these dead birds everywhere and a dead, favorite dead dog, you know. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll kill myself. Said, Wait a minute, that's, that's the wrong thing. It plays right into death's hands, you know. So you can't escape life, can you, huh? So this balance then of terror and elation is what you put into a book. Um, the reason why uh, a film like Field of Dreams works is because that's the stuff I'm talking about. It's magical. Huh? It shouldn't work 
but it's so well evoked. The ghosts of these baseball players come, come out of the cornfield and play the greatest game in history. And you, you cried during the whole film, just about. A lot of critics made fun of it, but that's the stuff I'm talking about. And uh, little things like, I've got to get my daughter Bettina to write about this. She was a typical, uh, you might say, premature women's liver at one time. It, it's a fashionable thing to do. Huh? And suddenly she's pregnant. And she gets into the hospital and the first baby is born. And four days later she called my my wife and she said, Oh, mother, I don't want to go back to work. I want to stay home and just look at the baby. Yeah, just look at the baby. Huh? That's it. That's it. Huh? So all these, these things to relish. The, the happiest years of my life were in Venice when we were really poor. My wife worked at Abbey Rich. She'd go downtown, come back at 6 o'clock on the big streetcar. I'd have some really lousy hamburgers cooking, huh? I was not a good. I made a, a black bottom pie once, which we threw out. You know. <laughs> but you know, uh, we we walked down to Ocean Park. We'd have a hot dog. We play the penny arcade. Penny. There was a penny a game in those days. We go home and make love. Go to sleep. Wake up. Same thing. She go to work, and I'd write another short story. Huh? We had nothing, but we had everything. Huh? That's what you write about. The day we got married, we had $8 in the bank. I put $5 on an envelope and handed it to the minister. And he says, what's this? I said, that's your fee for the ceremony today. He said, you're a writer, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, then you're going to need this. Huh? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And I took it. <laughs> and later, a couple of years later, when we had some money, I sent him a decent check. So, so there's so many things you haven't written about yet. You've been turning away from your basic truths. I want you to make those lists of your loves and your hates and your fears and your panics. And I want you to write about those and suddenly discover you've got something. Huh? The moments of truth. I, I was privileged 45 years ago to have Charles Lawton, the great American English director, actor, be my friend and teacher. And I'd go over and swim around the pool with Charlie and he'd tell me how he was going to do King Lear at Stratford-on-Avon. I said, Charlie, I can't help you. He said, I need a ricochet board. Shut up and listen. So he'd tell me how he was going to do Lear. How privileged, you know? Or how he was going to do The Apple Cart by George Bernard Shaw. Or why Pygmalion worked. Or uh, Major Barbara. He directed a lot. Or the uh, uh, Don Juan in Hell. He put that on the stage as a reading with with three other actors. One of the greatest evenings in history. Language, ideas, love, huh? And he said, now Ray, remember this, you are a poet, never forget that. And don't be afraid of speaking up. If you're gonna write plays or short stories, the moment of truth has gotta come in there and have the lead character step to the center of the stage and speak their love, their hate, their fear, whatever it is, the moment of truth that signifies the plot, huh? You got to explain why people are what they are. Huh? That's what makes a film like Lawrence of Arabia so great. And from the very beginning, you have a number of moments of truth, and you see what Lawrence is. He's a very peculiar man, but you like him in spite of him being a crank, very weird, very strange. But the film works because from the very start, 
when he lights someone's cigarette and then takes the match and sticks his finger in it, huh? And they say, you know, that, that, that hurts, you know? He said, yes, but not caring that it hurts is what counts, huh? So you get the beginning of character there, a small moment of truth. So all these experiments that I want you to try, and then you're going to fall in love with yourself, and you're going to do better work and better work and better work, huh? If you learn nothing else from this experience here in Santa Barbara, that, that's the great secret, huh? And I've never had a bestseller, huh? We all have dreams of these things at one time. Of course, I'm not going to kid you about that. But the Martian Chronicles, when it came out 50 years ago, sold 5,000 copies. My first book, Dark Carnival, there were, it was uh, published in 3,000 copies. It took five years to sell that edition five copies a day, huh? Five copies a day. Illustrated Man sold 6,000 copies hardcover. Nowadays, with my books of short stories, they, when they're published, they sell around 30,000 copies, which is a hell of a lot, huh? But it's not a bestseller. Hmm? Not a bestseller. I gave up thinking about that many, many years ago because I saw I was doing the right thing that made me happy and made other people happy. So that's the important thing. So, how much more time do I have? About 30 seconds. <laughs> well, I only have, I got a list of things here. I think, I, I think I've, <laughs> I think I've, <laughs> oh yeah, oh, I got to tell you this, I was at the library, here I am in life, I, when you begin to establish yourself in the coming years, if you want to be a really good volunteer, help the libraries. I've spoken at 90 libraries now in the last five years and helped them raise funds to buy books. But I was in the main library in LA a couple of years ago, and the day before, Bill Gates, the big computer president, was there ahead of me, and he signed his name in the book. And I came and wrote under his name, I don't do windows. Huh? <laughs> So, let me see if there's anything else here. Oh, oh, don't, it depends on your age, what I'm going to say next. Don't start by writing novels. Hygienically, it's dangerous if you're younger. I, I tried to do that sort of thing. I, I tried to write plays when I was a teenager. They were dreadful. So I got a, I ushered at theaters. I saw all the great plays. I couldn't afford to buy tickets. And then I went to the library and I read all the great plays, huh? And then um, uh, I began to write short stories because I discovered those were better ways to discover myself. And the feeling of accomplishment every week, you see, is what you need. You need to be encouraged to keep on writing. A novel takes six months or a year or two years, and it may not work, huh? There are very difficult things to do. I didn't do my first novel until I was 30. But I went into training for it. Wrote a whole series of short stories about book burnings and libraries and censorship. I didn't know I was preparing to write a novel, huh? But that's what I was doing. But the thing is, if you write a short story every week of your life for the next five years, I defy you to write five years worth of lousy short stories, huh? It can't be done. You may always succeed. <laughs> but you see, if you write a, a novel that doesn't work, it will do things to your psyche, huh? You won't believe in yourself. But if you write even one or two good short stories in a year, you begin to believe. And when I published my first short story when I was 20, 
I'd been writing eight years, huh? But my God, that first publication didn't sell another story for two years. But that story lasted, you see? Something to cling to. But if you have a novel that goes on forever and doesn't quite succeed, you may doubt your ability to write. No, you've been doing the wrong thing, perhaps, huh? Short stories, lots of them, about all these things I told you about. So that you, you feel worthwhile, that you like yourself. Now, I wrote all these short stories leading up to Fahrenheit 451. And one day, after we had two new children in the family, I had no money for an office. I went up to UCLA, I was prowling around, and I heard typing in the room underneath the library. I went down and investigated. They had a room down there where you could rent a typewriter for 10 cents a half hour. My God, it was great. There's 12 other students in there. They didn't know what I was doing. I came in with a bag of dimes. Huh? I sat down at that typewriter, and in nine days, I spent $9.50 in dimes, and I wrote Fahrenheit 451, huh? So I wrote a dime novel, didn't I? Yeah. Now, the great thing, you see, I was writing a book about censorship and books and learning and loving, and in between sessions of the typewriter, I ran upstairs and touched the books and smelled the books and tasted the books and held the books, huh? That's the relationship I want to have, you to have with books. And that damn book is still around, isn't it, huh? Still around. I didn't know I was writing a book that was still going to be around. I didn't set out to do that. I didn't set out to do anything except have fun, huh? And then I blundered into, into, uh, into architecture later. I did the top floor of the United States Pavilion at the New York World Fair 30 years ago. Did the interior of Epcot for Disney at, at uh, Disney World. All the metaphors, all the metaphors in there are mine. I created the Glendale Galleria indirectly, not knowing that I created it. Wrote an article on how to build the city of the future. Architects came along, took my article, and built them all. And then came and told me. And I said, uh, can I tell people that you, you did this? They said, yes, why? I said, well, I want to tell everyone that you're my bastard son, you know. <laughs> so you, you fall into things. You fall into things blindly. And then people start calling you. They find out how crazy you are in many different fields. So I haven't lifted the phone in, in 40 years. I wrote a short story that changed my life forever called The Foghorn, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I was walking along the beach and in Venice came upon the ruins of the old Venice Pier. I looked at the skeleton of the, of the roller coaster lying there in the sand. And I turned to my wife and I said, I wonder what that dinosaur is doing lying here on the shore. She was very careful not to answer. <laughs> and two or three nights later, I heard the foghorn blowing out in the Santa Monica Bay. I said, that's it. The dinosaur heard the foghorn blowing, thought it was another dinosaur, aroused from a billion years of sleeping, and swam in for an encounter with the lighthouse and discovered it was a foghorn, tore the whole thing down, swam in and died of a broken heart on the beach. Huh? I got up the next day and wrote the short story, The Foghorn. Changed my life completely for the whole rest of my life, that one short story. Because I gave all my collections of stories to John Houston. <clears throat> he read that story and gave me the job of writing Moby Dick. Huh? If I hadn't written that story, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. Huh? This science fiction fantasy about a dinosaur in love with a lighthouse. Huh? So you never know, do you? You never know what you're going to write, what surprises 
are waiting for you inside your mind. But you haven't even begun to dig them out because you've had other dreams of impossible things and wrong things. And you've got to clear that away. And you've got to discover you. And I wish you well in your search. Thank you very much.
vienen igual Gregory mañana igual mañana vienen igual
spend all the time telling why what we're doing is what we're doing and what we're doing is wrong. Why we should be working with the rest of the world and why we should be working with the rest of the world.